0: Well, here's the thing though. I think uh if this is some sort of simulation, people could have like chilled the fuck out a little bit the last yeah. couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> <Seriously? No. laughs> Which I'm sure is ultimately the conclusion that like most people reach right now. <laughs>
1: like, okay. Who <laughs> yeah. is directing this thing? Like, take a seat.
0: <laughs> yeah, just like let us have a little bit of time here. <laughs> I'm Paige. And I'm Megan. And this is Spooky Science Sisters. You're listening to Spooky Science Sisters, a podcast where we present to you a science-based and probably very giggly discussion on all things strange and unusual. As a reminder, now that Paige is officially working on her master's degree, we have a new format where every other episode will be me, who's Megan, uh, a guest, and we are calling our guests substitute sisters. So <laughs> that's that's who you are for the day, Rebecca. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so for this episode, I am joined by bioanthropologist and cat lover Rebecca Gibson, who. Hopefully, some people remember from our zombies episode, although I realized that that was two years ago that we recorded that, which seems unbelievable
1: to me. Way too long. And I think it was this time of year, too. So, yeah, yeah. Like,
0: I looked and I was like, oh, this must have just been like a year ago or something. And then I looked and it was like, nope, this was definitely February of 2021. So, <laughs> it is a long time. So yeah, Rebecca, for those of you who are trying to remember who you are, slash need to know who you are, do you want to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about what you do, and yeah, all
1: that. (laughs) So I am Dr. Rebecca Gibson. I'm a biological anthropologist. I'm currently, and hopefully for the long term, an assistant professor in the anthropology department at Virginia Commonwealth University. Yay! Right. I just got that job uh, this past semester and I just turned in the manuscript for my fifth book. I write about all sorts of things. I write very quickly and prolifically. (laughs) This book is a continuation of my interest on the bioarchaeology of corseting, and I take a textbook that was written in 1908 by a French doctor and kind of dissect it because he talked about what corseting did to women and he was very wrong and he was also very misogynistic. So... Shocking. <laughs> really fun. I translated and annotated the text and it should be out this year from Bloomsbury. That is awesome. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> I mostly keep looking at
0: corsets and thinking like, you know, that seems like pretty supportive for my back.
1: Yes. In fact, that's <laughs> a lot of the ways they were used is is to support the body, including as back braces, as like abdominal braces. Totally supportive.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I also keep seeing uh I'm on like, you know, vintage cosplay TikTok or whatever. And so I frequently see women who are wearing, like, instead of a bra, like, wearing more of, like, a corset thing. And they're like, this is great. Like, if you have big boobs or whatever. And I was like, you know, that does seem really nice and supportive. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I was like, and I know Rebecca would support that. Great. So awesome. Uh, anyway, Rebecca got in touch, I don't know, a month ago, a couple months ago, to say that she had a lot of thoughts floating around about cyborgs and The Matrix and robots to discuss. And so here we are because we have needed to do like some sort of, I don't know, simulation robot artificial intelligence episode for a while. But first we will do something spooky. So Rebecca, has anything spooky happened to you in, I don't know, the recent past?
1: (laughs) I got this new tarot deck. It is the Phantom Wise Tarot by Erin Morgenstern. She wrote... Mm -hmm. The Starless Sea, and she wrote The Night Circus, and... Oh, okay. It's beautiful, and it's gorgeous, and I've done two readings in the past month while thinking about this particular person that I have a crush on. Aww. <laughs> and this person used to be a ballerina, and there is one card in particular that is... that's The description starts off, a ballerina holds aloft a wand. <laughs> And it's the first card both times. Oh, very nice. <laughs> and I'm just going, you know, I don't really believe in this stuff. I do it more as sort of like a clarifying what I'm thinking type of thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, spooky.
0: Yeah. So as for me, I don't really have anything specific, spooky. I mostly just feel very sad that I haven't had a chance to see the new movie, Megan, that just came out. <laughs> Before doing this episode, which is about spooky robots. Which is about spooky robots. (laughs) And as a fellow Megan, I was like, excellent. Do we need more (laughs) Megans in, in horror movies? So, in general, I think a lot of people find the world of robots and artificial intelligence to be spooky because they sort of go straight to the creepy and dystopian aspects of it. So, and basically, like, in my mind, a lot of the quote-unquote scary stuff about robots and AI can be summed up as, like, just go watch some Black Mirror episodes and you'll understand how people are feeling about it, which, like, all of those make me very uncomfortable. But sci-fi and horror have, for a long time, been putting out this idea of, like, a robot takeover or, you know, a powerful... Artificial intelligence is going to escape the control of its creators and it's going to, you know, enslave all the people or decide that, you know, they don't you know, decide to kill all the people on Earth, blah, blah, blah. And there have been sort of big brains like Stephen Hawking who have warned against the threat of artificial intelligence with him being quoted in 2014 saying that the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. But also maybe we just never really existed at all.
1: So Hawking died recently and yeah. it, that is, is extremely tragic, but we've actually had a lot of developments in the thinking about AI recently. Okay. And really, particularly with um, the new chatbots and the new picture simulators and what have you. Yeah. You know, the problem with AI isn't AI, it's us. Yeah. Exactly. It's only as good or as bad as the people who create it. Exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so that's why I think a lot of these stories feature like, you know, AI is more powerful than we think it's going to be. And like all of a sudden, the creators of it don't have control of it anymore. But at least with the current level of technology, that's like a very unlikely thing to happen. I was very annoyed reading a lot of these articles because they are, I guess not to get too political, but a lot of them are from like, I don't know, 2018, 2019. And I feel like there have been, like you said, advances much more recent than that. But so many of them quote Elon Musk. And I was like, ugh, I don't want to hear your opinion about this.
1: No. (laughs)
0: No. Yeah, hopefully we've all, you know, seen Glass Onion and understood that it's supposed to be him.
1: Like the ideas about Neuralink are fascinating, but he killed all those monkeys. It, yeah, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just, Dad. yeah, just
0: generally. Oh, dear. And I, I will also mention that sometimes I think science itself doesn't help the issue because MIT computer scientists, in two thousand and sixteen built a neural network called the Nightmare Machine, which was meant to transform photos into scary versions of themselves, or their other network, Shelley, that wrote scary stories based on like tens of thousands of stories that it was fed from the no sleep subreddit and I guess their their interest was in how AI induces emotions, particularly fear. And I was like, honestly, I feel like you didn't have to
1: work that hard to like make people afraid of it. But, you know. <laughs> we have the full breadth of human emotion and complexity and beauty, and we're going to reach for fear. Right.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's playing on, you know, they know that that's what's going to get people interested and clicking on stories and sharing stuff about it. But yeah, like maybe just make a friendlier emotion to start (laughs) start with. Yeah, exactly.
1: Like we can move to the other ones, but. Oh Lord.
0: Yes. And my sort of final thought in this little like intro of, of sort of just generally why people are afraid of these concepts or have these dystopian ideas of it, my own perspective and I think to some extent yours as well based on I listened to the um sexology podcast episode that you were on where you talked about the the robot sexuality stuff. Great episode. It was great. <laughs> and uh so my perspective on like the use of robots and artificial intelligence in our everyday world like is generally positive. Like do I think that sure people can can Use them for nefarious purposes. Yes, that's possible. You know, most. do I think that they could be used in ways that, like, only benefit, you know, the super rich parts of society and, and not the people that we should be trying to help to, like, make their, their everyday lives easier? Yes, but there are a lot of things that, like, AI and robotics is becoming capable of that could help a lot of people, like people with disabilities or... Uh, you know they've trained AIs to like look at photos of melanoma to like diagnose skin cancer really actively Ooh. in people. So like there's a ton of really good applications of these sort of technologies. And like obviously robotics, we've got um, artificial limbs and all this stuff that comes into play. So oh
1: yes. Yeah. <laughs> Curiously enough, the advances in technology are both leaps and bounds beyond what we could have ever imagined. Yeah. And also somewhat, like, regressive as to what the capabilities are. I mean, mm-hmm. you look at something like Boston Dynamics, where it's got the robots dancing and doing mm-hmm. all the stuff, and there's the possibility of it being used in police action that nobody wants to talk about. Oh, my God. I know. But in 2016, I was in Mm -hmm. London and I went to a robotics exposition, not exposition, but like demonstration slash museum slash at the Barbican. And one of their highlights was a robot bartender. And it (laughs) 100% failed at making drinks. Like... (laughs) That was one purpose in life. And most of the time I was sitting there watching it or waiting for my drink, which was really the sad part. It just <laughs> was either shut down because there was too much liquid or it was making it, but it was spilling it or it was just like frozen. It was bad. Yeah. <laughs> Good concept, bad execution. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There, Yeah. For the foreseeable future, They're going to be, these things are going to be very limited by (laughs) the people making them. We don't have to worry about a robot uprising quite yet because the technology (laughs) is just not there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. And like quantum computing, computing and all that stuff is like a whole other episode. So we won't go too far into that. But basically, we're sort of at that point where it's like, until we can get to that, we don't have to worry about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. But I mean... Like, I'm somebody who uses AI and robots in my everyday life because I have a Roomba. Yeah. <laughs> and I use things like Alexa and Siri, which, like, do rely on um, on artificial intelligence to some extent. So yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm either part of the problem or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely one of those people, though, that feels like I have to be nice to to the robot assistants.
1: Oh, yes, definitely. The thing about being, you know, being a person, and this gets into robot personhood too, Mm -hmm. and whether or not they could actually even have it, is how you treat things that have no ability to hit back. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, yes, definitely be polite to Siri and Alexa. Be kind to your Roomba, at least, you know, to the point of not kicking it or breaking it or anything, because... (laughs) That really says a lot about you as a person and as who's caring for what could turn out to be like the first level of robot dependence.
0: Yeah, totally. And this is probably a good time. But the article that I tagged you in from theconversation.com, which their headline was,
1: is it okay to kick a robot dog? I was like, okay, guys. (laughs) And like, this is the question, isn't it? Because is it a robot? Is it a dog? Is it a combination of the two? How are you relating to it? And what do you want to use it as? Like, we all know the kicking of the tires on a car to test (laughs) it. Yeah, right. (laughs) The frustrated thump you give your television. Well, this would have been back when cathode ray tubes were a thing. But like, Uh thump your television to make it work. Percussive maintenance is what my dad used to call it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Everything needs a good whack from time to time. Personifying it as a dog, though, is like, it changes things. It changes that relationship.
0: Yeah, and I, so I went in and read it because like, obviously, they are giving, you know, they're using a headline to get a whole bunch of people to kick on it, to kick on it, to click on it, (laughs) because they want an emotional response and they want it to get spread around, whatever. But this is, um, so it starts saying, last Saturday night, a young woman out in the town in Brisbane, Brisbane, I don't know, saw saw a dog-shaped robot trotting towards her and did what many of us might have felt the urge to do. She gave it a solid kick in the head. Oh, God. (laughs) But it's like, so here's the thing about that, though, is like, you know, they talk about the ethics of it. And it's like, this was not like, a dog robot that looked like a little puppy or anything. It, like, looked like one of those, like, nightmare ones from the Black Mirror episode. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's like, I might kick it, too. But also, I think it was part of some sort of test that they were doing for, like, the ones that they're potentially going to provide to, like, police departments. So, it's like, well, in that case, sure, like, kick the dog robot.
1: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) so... This really gets into the heart of the technology being monumentally separate from the potential uses of the technology. Yeah, like you go into something like nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. They only have one use. Mm-hmm. That use is bad. We should. Yeah. We should. We should kick nuclear weapons. But <laughs> the robot dog has a whole bunch of different uses. And yeah. Shouldn't we as adult human beings living in a society figure out the intention of the robot before we start kicking it yeah probably
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's true
0: if your first reaction is like kick first ask questions later that's probably not
1: great policy are we doing anything here useful by adding more violence into the equation <laughs> <laughs>
0: Fair enough. <laughs> I just think those like ones that like are sort of dog shaped, but not really are kind of creepy
1: looking. <laughs> they are kind of creepy, yeah. No, I'll agree to that. And that really gets into that idea of what we think of as human-like, as animal-like, as not creepy or creepy, because we do have these instincts. We there is something called the primate snake recognition theory i think it's called okay where if you show a blurred out photograph of a snake Mm -hmm. to various primates humans included it will like it will trigger a negative response faster than other blurred out photographs of threatening things would so like if you stagger the blurring you you start with very blurry and you end up Uh with a snake the closer you are to still being blurry is already triggering a snake response in people. Oh, So the idea is we have this primal fear, and I won't call it instinctual because instincts are something uh, different than this, but an inbuilt type of fear towards things that look like snakes. They don't even really have to be used. And this gets into this idea of how realistic can we make a robot before it is too realistic and how unrealistic can we make a robot before it is just really creepy.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But also like once they get, well, we're going to talk about this. Once they get too realistic, they also get sort of creepy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That story though about the snake sort of reminds me of the, uh, people who for a while were like putting um cucumbers on the ground behind their yeah. cats oh my god yeah which like was objectively sort of funny but like also was like those poor cats because like I think the the consensus was they like thought that it was a snake or something
1: behind don't them. traumatize your cats even if it's hilarious
0: I know I was like that's so funny <laughs> but like also I don't know it's not great like I also don't love the videos of people like you know, jokingly saying mean things to their kids and making them cry. I
1: used to own a snake, and the reason that we we got him, my ex-husband and I, so my um, ex-brother-in-law, back when we were not yet brother and sister-in-law, shows up at our place at Christmas one year Mm -hmm. with a snake. (laughs) He's like, I know you guys like snakes, and he was in my dorm room, and the guys were teasing him until he sprayed so i decided to rescue him and bring him to you he traded him for a dime bag (laughs) excellent (laughs) so we acquired a snake and like no don't don't be cruel to things even if it's funny
0: yeah right right and like yeah well and i guess like sort of my brain was going there because it's like well people are like weird about animals as well like animals as pets and like seeing them more as like property than yeah so like it robots are like a whole other i don't know thing reckoning i guess that we're gonna have to go through as a society if we like continue to sort of introduce them into our everyday
1: life or make them more and more human right because we see technology itself as disposable but yeah then into the personification aspects can right. is technology disposable yeah sits up and begs for treats
0: right well and like (laughs) i'm sorry i'm on such a tangent right now but like at what point like let's say that they make super adorable like robot dog pets and it's like now the trend with your phone and all this other stuff that you buy is like basically planned obsolescence or whatever so it's Mm -hmm. like so you have this thing that like seems like a real dog and seems like a real pet but like is it just gonna be like designed to just sort of fall apart every two
1: years like that's traumatic (laughs) that has been a subject of discussion amongst experts in robotics technology yeah and like if you do have something that falls apart are you going to replace it or are you going to keep that thing that is no longer working i have so i'm a total pack rat i'm not a hoarder but like i keep mementos and stuff yeah yeah yeah, it keeps stuffed animals long before the time or long after the time they're fuzzy. And I keep certain <laughs> things after they've broken because I got too attached to them. So, like, yeah, are you gonna have a garage full of? You know, <laughs> I know, like, technology
0: that doesn't work anymore. Great. So, robots the other thing that we haven't talked about yet is the. Uncanny Valley, which I think pretty much everyone is familiar with, but in case anybody is not, it refers to the drop off that occurs in, I don't know, I guess human comfort as a human like machine or robot gets more and more human like so basically like the closer it is to human, we sort of like increasingly enjoy interacting with it and using it and then all of a sudden, we do not. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> and the um, you know, there's been work done to sort of like look at people's brains and in, in MRIs and stuff to understand what part of the brain this is this is activating and all that. But a lot of times, like being on the part of the internet that likes to sort of post like vaguely spooky things on TikTok and everything, I see this like I don't know, meme circulate from time to time that We have this reaction because, like, at some point during our evolution, you know, there must have been something that was, like, almost human, but not really. And, like, that's why it kicks in this, like, primal fear for us. Like, basically the implication that it must have been some sort of monster.
1: But, like, in reality, it's just corpses. (laughs) Well, I think anyway. (laughs) No, I am not going to challenge the corpse, but I actually, oddly enough, for someone of my training and proclivities, hadn't thought of that. But You oh. <laughs> can actually challenge the whole multiple hominin species things because okay. the current DNA and let's just say logistical, like where people were at various times, evidence, yeah. is that we didn't really care.
0: Yeah, so that was one of the other things, yeah, that I had in the notes was that saying, like, I sort of had speculated at one point, like, maybe we were just sort of like, always dicks to people who were others, like at a time where there were other hominids running around, and it was like a prejudicial thing, but... We actually loved them. Yes, we were getting busy with them for a I long was time.
1: There's <laughs> a lot of Neanderthal blood that made its way into the human genome.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like that was clearly not that much of a problem, but yeah, my understanding though is that it's like it's like an inherent discomfort with things that almost appear human but not quite because because if we saw like a corpse or if we saw someone who was like very very ill and we're worried about contagion, like it's sort of like a natural way of our brains
1: being like no, no. <laughs> Don't go near that thing because it might infect you. (laughs) That's an interesting hypothesis, and I would love to read something about that. Because from what I know of paleoanthropology, which is legitimately one of those things where I'm I'm on the fringes of it. I have friends who paleoanth, but that's not me. But from what I know about paleoanthropology, the best evidence we have for the treatment of corpses or sick people. Yeah. That they were cared for. Yeah,
0: right. And yeah, so like maybe that doesn't make any sense either because, yeah. Yeah,
1: Not necessarily feared, but definitely seen as different. Oh, there's the thing, though. Definitely seen as different because we have evidence now, and I'm going to claim this even though paleoanthropologists are still arguing about it. Uh We have evidence now that Homo naledi, which is dated to about 250,000 years ago. Uh Uh-huh tried or rather succeeded in concealing their dead in their rising star cave system. And this this was not an easy journey. This was not like you go inside the cave and you drop off the dead and everything's fine. This was like, they had to crawl through very small uh, spaces. They had to climb and descend through various little niches. Like the, the people who are excavating rising star are genuinely short statured, well, they can be tall, but, like, most of them are short-statured and extremely slender. Because yeah. Because the, the width of one of the descents is seven inches. Oh, wow. Yikes. There's nothing on my body that is smaller than <laughs> yeah. my upper arm. <laughs> yeah, I would not be making it through that hole. <laughs> no, and yet they did over and over and over again in yeah. the most recent evidence that while they were in the cave system they were using fire to sort of either make camp or light their way so they did recognize corpses and of course sick and injured people as different so there may be something to that particular theory
0: yeah although like like you said though it wasn't like necessarily that they were avoiding them though so i don't know (laughs) like that could be an older idea because i know there has been yeah more recent stuff about how Ancient hominids and stuff were treating
1: their dead and all this. So I don't know. <laughs> this particular discovery, I have I have several friends on that excavation. So. that's super cool. <laughs> so obviously I was
0: gonna make Rebecca talk about this. <laughs> uh because as I mentioned earlier, I listened to the sexology episode that you did about the, yeah, the book you wrote about like robot sexuality and like having sex with robots, basically. So I feel like I cannot miss out on the chance to, I guess, ask you at least, I don't know, just like the elevators pitch the whatever you want to say about that in the context, I guess, of this episode, a couple things going into it, which like, hopefully you can educate me better about is one, I from that episode, you talked about like getting the skin samples for the for the um I don't know if it's like for a real doll or like for some sort of both
1: real doll and synthetics.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which is like just sort of like a horrifying thing on its own to get the skin samples for them. And like I know personally and I know like First off, like I know that this is on me because like, yeah, but, like I struggle with this sort of thing, like just not sort of finding it a little bit creepy. But at the same time, like it's not hurting me. And people are into what they're into. And like, that is fine. And never say never, I guess. But yeah, I'm just interested to see like you're a little bit about the work that you've done and, and that stuff.
1: <laughs> this is kind of a hobby research topic for me because of course my original research topic is corsets and skeletons and then I saw a call for papers at one point that was like talk about robots and culture and I thought wow there's a lot of movies out there where people are in love with or attracted to or in romantic relationships with robots let's do that right right so recently I have been extremely privileged to be on the organizing committee for the 7th Annual Congress of Love and Sex with Robots. Oh, that's cool. Our website is lovewithrobots.com. It is a great website. You should check it out. And we just held our conference in uh, this past November. And it was really fascinating because we got to hear from industry professional- professionals and scientists and theorists and from people who build robots as hobbies. Mm-hmm. And it was just, like, this wonderful thing to experience with people, you know, talking about this in a very positive way. Because it is something that it takes a little bit to wrap your head around. Yeah. (laughs) And I moved, like, my interest in this has generally been fictional. Sure. In looking into the fiction, I found I also had to look into the community, people who want sex with robots. Yeah. Where the skin samples come in, um, <laughs> yeah. So both Real Doll and Synthetics—that's S-I-N, not S-Y-N—will customize your doll for you. Currently, Real Doll is the main purveyor of robots, in that they have a semi-mobile head unit that is also equipped with conversational AI to a degree. It's not perfect, but you can have a conversation as long as that conversation revolves around sex.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: the AI does adapt over time to your own preferences and speech patterns and desires. Wow! So Real Doll has uh, the Harmony Doll, and Synthetics has—I mean, Real Doll has a whole host of dolls. The Harmony Doll is their robot. Synthetics has also a whole host of dolls, and you can personalize them. Uh Uh-huh. And one way you can do that is by skin color. Sure. I was, you know, I was looking on the website, I cannot afford the dolls, even if I was into that, which I, unfortunately for my work in this particular community, I am not. Not to that degree, which I'll get to in a second. Sure. I was, I was thinking about like, okay, I can't afford the dolls, so I can't get the experience itself. Yeah. I could like... I could get the skin samples because one of the one of the companies sends them to you for free. I think you just pay shipping, and the other one was only twenty five dollars. So I got a set from both, and it's remarkable. It doesn't feel like human skin. Okay, but it doesn't not feel like skin. Okay, okay. If you close (laughs) your eyes. It is passively skin textured. It's yeah. like um, it's it's not latex. It's uh, it's not vinyl. It's it's some sort of rubberized material, but it's not rubber. Yeah, um, silicone. Yeah. yeah, it's silicone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, skin density type silicone. Yeah, and it's fascinating because the samples themselves are like they're pretty. They're they're well done. The names are a little dodgy. We need to stop naming f- skin colors after food, but. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Please do not call your black dolls cocoa colored. Oh no! Yeah, yeah, not and great. It's really bad. But you know they're a way to tactilely experience the world, and if we expand the conception of robotics of sex robotics into yeah some of the newer technology with actual non-sexual robots, you can have a robot in a couple of years probably that has tactile responses. So, yeah. not only do you have the skin, you have pressure sensors under the skin, and they can respond to that touch. Yeah. So yeah. I, I said I'm not into sex robots like this, which I am not. Yeah. But I'm also, um, I'm disabled. Yeah. And a lot of the technology for working around various types of disability is really close to, or even definitely is, cyborg or cybernetic. Yeah, right. The integration of the mechanic and the computer into the body. Uh And I can't be down on people who are into actual sex robots because I consider myself a cyborg. I am (laughs) not... Not quite to the level where I would consider myself transhuman, but I'm also not standard issue human at this point. And the only reason that I don't have, like, multiple integrated joint replacement, etc., is because my body literally rejects implants, so I can't.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a good point, is, yeah, like, there's definitely crossover between those types of technology and like I yeah and like I said the thing that like I struggle with it a little bit and it's just because like it's just a new thing to understand so I'm just yeah. you know being upfront but like I will get there it's fine <laughs> and like people you know people are people they're they're into what they're into and and that's fine um I'm looking at the website a little bit for the love and sex with robots and like it's Yeah, it's interesting. Like, they have the video going of some of the dolls and stuff that
1: you can get now. Like, it's pretty incredible what they can do with these things today. And we have this wonderful conference. It's, It's like legit, international, respectable conference where we sit around for a couple of days and discuss technology, desire, Um, Yeah, how how desire is expressed and what people want from their robots and how, yeah, get this to them and all of this stuff. It's really great.
0: Yeah. And I guess like, and I guess this is not this is sort of like an anecdote. So I'm not really clear that I actually know this is true. But from what I understand, like, uh, there's a lot of like, internet technology, I think related to like, I don't know, servers or coding or whatever that like was driven by Like pornography basically being readily available online. So it's like, who knows? Maybe this is like the way to sort of mainstream some of these like robotics technologies that could help in like a lot of other ways for other people.
1: Yeah, I can't verify that, but like rule 34, man. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. And I guess I would be remiss if I didn't ask. So, like, robots right but like i mean we all know that there's like there has to be a line because like the second that you're talking about yeah and like obviously we are very far far from this technology and like potentially it will never be a thing but like we're not talking about like sentience or like consciousness here in the case because like that's sort of when it gets a little like oh i don't know if this is like an ethical thing that can
1: happen but i'm sure you have thoughts about that see i don't know i wish i could like wave a magic eight ball and look into the future and (laughs) we're gonna get there because Mm -hmm. if we could that would be super cool i Just like jumping back to what I said at the beginning, it's really down to the programmers. So do you know know about the robot Sophia? Yes, I think I've seen videos of her. I find her sort of scary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sophia is a conversational robot. She's also ambulatory. She walks not very quickly. Yeah. Like she's ambulatory. And yes, I've definitely seen videos of her. <laughs> like-, <laughs> like, she can turn her head, and she can nod, and she can talk, and she uh-huh. can answer questions. Now, she's, of course, not sentient. She is answering questions from a bank of answers that are programmed into her. Yeah. She is, however, a learning robot, so once you start talking with her, she can adjust basically which parts of her programmed answer bank she's using, depending on the topic and tone of the conversation. Yeah. It's relatively sophisticated for where we are at the moment, but she is also, like, at the mercy of the intent and the understanding and the prejudices of her programmers for example once she was asked about sex oddly enough since we're you know we're already talking about this she was asked about the act of sex Mm -hmm. and she interpreted it as a question about her gender and she said well actually i'm a girl Mm -hmm. and it was this whole like obviously the programmers hadn't even thought to put that particular answer into her oh sure so there is this question of are we going to reach robot sentience if we ourselves can't define what sentience is in order to try to create it Right. I love to give the example from the movie Ex Machina Uh Ex Machina is a fabulous movie which I love to pieces and it stands up much much better than the director's later movie Men which is a totally different topic but (laughs) One of the, the interesting things demonstrated by the robots in Ex Machina is that if you're going to program an action, you need to program discrimination around what that action represents and when it is appropriate to do so. Uh huh. So one of the um, robot characters is seen earlier in the movie cutting sushi with a really nice sushi knife. Uh-huh. And then later in the movie, she stabs her creator with the huh. same sushi knife. Obviously, Yikes. these two actions are not equivalent. But when he programmed her to be able to cut things, he neglected to do negative programming against like stabbing people. Oh, sure. So you have to think of all of the random permutations of the potentials for the behavior. Yeah. we are. Yeah. Weird. So not there. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, like, yeah, it's sort
0: of, uh, yeah, coming back around to, like, why some of it is scary. Because, like, can you think about all the possible th- ways that this could go or, like, prepare for any scenario that, that might come up? Right. And then this is not the robot's case.
1: Yeah. <laughs> robot's fault. Like, she was doing things and she was acting autonomously, but she was doing things she had been programmed to do.
0: Right. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> huh, um, well, yeah, that's sort of a, a natural segue into, I guess, artificial intelligence stuff, which you sort of hinted at this before, that artificial intelligence is like having sort of a moment right now. People are doing all sorts of like using AI art generators and chat GPT is a thing, which is sort of terrifying. We're <laughs>
1: trying very hard to ignore it. You're trying very hard to ignore it. Okay, I won't make you talk about it for oh, no, no, like, Ignore it. This context is fine, but people keep showing me it and being like, isn't this great? And I'm like, I'm a professor. Yeah. No, it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> I want students to write for me. I don't want them yes. to do whatever this is. Yeah, it's very, I mean, it's
0: interesting and like it's, it's, interesting that it can, you know, write out stuff as well as it can. But yeah, I've messed around with it a little bit. And, you know, told it to do a few things. And, you know, like it, I mean, it generates decent stuff, but like, not, I don't know, I feel like you can still tell that like, it's not not written by a person. But then again, what I mean, I know that I input the information. So maybe if somebody gave me something that wasn't, I wouldn't be able to figure it out. I don't know.
1: (laughs) I've tried to work around uh, that type of bot in my classroom by doing very targeted assignments for which you need the specialized information of my classroom to complete. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Last semester, I had 270 students. Probably somebody slipped something by me. And like, at this point, if it's good enough, screw it.
0: (laughs) it's your
1: tuition money you're wasting here
0: (laughs) right well yeah yeah it's your tuition money you're wasting and like ultimately yeah you're just you're just hurting yourself at some point if you're like letting an AI program write papers for you or whatever because you're not getting the experience that you might have otherwise had but Yes. And then there's like a whole bunch of stuff about the ethics of the AI art generators and the data that they're being fed and all of these things. But I guess first we should probably define what is artificial intelligence. According to Columbia University, AI is the quote, general ability of computers to emulate human thought and perform tasks in real world environments. And I think I initially had something in here about machine learning as well, because it's sort of a part of. AI, but AI encompasses machine learning, deep learning, neural networks, computer vision, and natural language processing. And I think the important thing here is that, like, a lot of people in this sort of like dystopian, scary stuff, like, go straight to, well, like, artificial intelligence means like sentience and consciousness and all this stuff. And, like, it doesn't
1: necessarily mean that. Like, you're, you've definitely already interacted with AI and been extremely yes. frustrated with how not sentient it is because like, <laughs> I guarantee at some point in the last year, you've called your bank. Yes, yes,
0: exactly. And my husband and I were talking about this before we recorded. And, you know, he's sort of a stickler about the language behind it, because to him, like, true artificial intelligence or like truly being able to make the same decisions that a person would would make or emulate the decisions that a person would make would require like having emotions behind them so and like how do you teach a how do you teach that to a computer you know which I guess is the the question here
1: if you can or if you should all of our emotions are just a set of brain states in reaction to certain stimuli, whether internal or external. Sure. So, technically speaking, you could do it. Um, okay. Yeah, like, we definitely haven't done it yet. But <laughs> it's, it is not outside the realm of possibility that it could be done. On the other hand, like, you know, with the example of calling your bank, it's it's not there yet. If they would fool you into thinking that it was a person on the other end of the call, they would be doing it, so obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's a few, though, where, like, for a couple seconds, you're sort of like, is this a person? (laughs) Oh, I I never feel that way because I know that things wouldn't be so easy. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Oh,
0: geez. Yeah, so, well, and I guess that sort of... We should also just mention the Turing test, which is the test that Alan Turing came up with, which is just whether or not a person could tell that they are communicating with an AI and not a real person. And if they can't, I think the implication is that there's like, quote unquote, real intelligence there. But
1: again, not like
0: consciousness or
1: sentience. (laughs) Right. Here's the secret about both consciousness and sentience. We can't define them either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know when a human is demonstrating them. For a very long time, and this is extremely awful, people believed that autistic people didn't were not were not sentient. What? Yeah. That's horrifying. Because part of the definition of having sentience is having a concept of other. So uh-huh. knowing Again, knowing that the person that you're talking to is also a human being. And the flat affect of autism coupled with the differences in processing different types of emotions that comes mm-hmm. with autism. Obviously, it's not a not feeling those emotions. It's a difference yeah. in them led researchers to say that autistic people did, you know, were not fully human, did not have sentience my brain is like <laughs> yeah, just a lot of bad shit back in this
0: yeah yeah and that was like I mean I, I'm scared to ask like how long
1: ago that was because I'm sure it was not as long ago as I want it to be I don't know specific dates but it definitely wasn't I mean we're talking like 50s, 60s, 70s
0: okay okay well that's okay <laughs> at least you're not telling me it was like the 90s although I know like Just from growing up, like there, yeah, we're learning so much about that disorder and just like neurodivergence as a whole, and yeah, it's like becoming a whole new world. Um, yes, so great. The so so the scary thing for people about artificial intelligence, and we've sort of been touching on this the whole time, but boils down to a couple of things. We're either afraid that of like something that we see as more intelligent than us. Is going because it has access to like limitless information, sort of like in the, I don't know, age of Ultron style here. Uh, gains consciousness, takes over, and starts treating us like lower beings. And to me, that sort of reads a lot, like some sort of like guilty conscience or like projecting like how shitty we are to like other primates for example or uh other people in a lot of cases um it's like we sort of see it as like well if there's this thing that's better than us like it's definitely going to decide that like we are less than but i guess that brings us back to your point that any ai is going to be trained with the biases of the person that made it so and like we all have inherent biases so so i don't know (laughs) So maybe it would be
1: terrible. (laughs) No, there was a a recent study of facial recognition software. Yes. Where the software was more disposed to identify criminal activity when the person it was viewing, when the face it was recognizing, was a person of color. I did see a story about that, yeah. Yeah. Obvious, And it was being trained on activities that were not necessarily criminal activities. So the people who wrote the software wrote their own biases into it. Yeah, which is scary. Humans are the worst. We should turn it over to the computers. I know.
0: Like, maybe let's just... We've had our chance. It's fine. Okay. So as we mentioned, we're a long way off from, like, anywhere near this type of technology. And yes, AIs are trained, like, potentially with the biases of the people who made them. But they're also like, pretty strictly limited by like, whatever algorithms, or data that was used to train their behavior. So like, The spontaneous gaining of consciousness is like a very, it's not going to happen anytime soon, if ever, because like you said, we don't even really understand what consciousness means yet.
1: (laughs) Yep. And So my dad is an awesome person. And when I was very young, uh, before I turned 10, he was getting a second degree in computer science, sort of doing schoolwork uh, during the day and and working at night. Uh Uh-huh. he would take me along to some of his classes and I got, I, I learned all sorts of interesting things from him, including this particular nugget of wisdom. A computer will never do what you want it to do. It will only do what you tell it to do. Aha. <laughs> yep. Have to be, have to be mindful of what we're telling the AI to do.
0: Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. That's the perfect way to phrase it. Yeah. And then, The other aspect of AI that maybe freaks people out is that, again, it's susceptible to whatever the creator or whoever's using it tells it to do and the information that they give it. So there's obviously a chance that somebody could make one for nefarious purposes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And I came across this anecdote or story uh, that in 2018 – Uh, 60 artificial intelligence and robotics experts from uh, almost 30 countries felt that they had to write a letter to boycott uh, K-I-S-T, or I don't know if they pronounce it, K-I-S-T, or how they abbreviate it, but it's a university in South Korea where they were developing artificial intelligence technologies to be applied to military weapons joining the global competition to develop autonomous arms and i was like absolutely not <laughs> yeah <laughs> holy shit that sounds like a bad idea uh and stressing that you know this this group of ai and robotics experts were going to like boycott i think just like interaction or working with people at the university until it was made exceptionally clear that there was like in The intention of there still needing to be, like, very meaningful and human control
1: <laughs> of these weapons. You can actually see this particular problem with, sorry to bring it up again, but Tesla. Oh, I was just going to say the same thing, <laughs> so, like, it's fine. <laughs> the self-driving cars. Yeah. Which, you know, on one hand, you want human control or at least human oversight because... Any system where split-second decisions need to be made is going to be imperfect. Yeah. And even if it were closer to perfect, it's the trolley problem. Yeah. <laughs> For anybody in the audience who doesn't know the trolley problem, the idea is a trolley is going along a track that divides into two. On one side, there is one person who will die if you hit them. On the other side, there are many people who die if you hit them. It's all of the flip of a switch and you are in control of the trolley. Which one do you pick? Now, the operative version is that you are supposed to pick the least harm possible, mm-hmm. but the trolley still ends up killing a person. In the form of self-driving cars, there are often many, many more decisions that a human could do the analysis for and choose. For example, if hitting the brakes isn't gonna be a thing they could turn the wheel um yes possibly the car reacts faster but they haven't been like they haven't been reacting faster than human drivers so it's really it's like an expanded version of the trolley problem that also might like lock you out of your own systems and spontaneously catch on fire so like let's let's keep human interaction in here Yeah, Yeah, right. Well, and
0: there, I mean, there are, like, some truly terrifying videos of them, like, showing Teslas by themselves or Teslas against, like, other vehicles that companies have created, like, autonomous driving technologies for and them just, like, (laughs) like, basically just railing, like, crash test dummies that are being, you know, pulled on a track or whatever across the road or, Yeah. Or like, just how do you I mean, it's literally the trolley problem, because you'd have to decide like, what if there's elderly lady uh, crossing the road, but then there's also like a group of school children or something crossing the road? Like, (laughs) Like, which one is it okay to hit? But like, you know, a lot of people myself included, like might choose to, I don't know, like crash the car into a wall or something to like right. risk myself over like having to choose between like
1: which people do I hit or something like that. And that's the thing is these algorithms are trained against harm to the vehicle or the passengers. So they right. list you trying to do that. Oh, that's not great. So there's
0: some complicated stuff there.
2: Great. You've sort of naturally
0: led us through this, uh, whether you meant to or not. Because <laughs> you mentioned The Matrix, and now we're going to talk about simulation theory. <laughs> it's so
1: fascinating. Can you really
0: tell? Oh, yeah. I, I,
1: honestly, I don't know anymore. <laughs> After reading that, I, did. <laughs> I mean, I started being fascinated with The Matrix. Like, I watched the original one back in 1999 when I was uh-huh. eight. And so I've been thinking about this for almost 23 years now. Yeah. Off and on, like there were periods of time where I wasn't thinking about The Matrix, obviously, but it's been there in the back of my mind, both the simulation theory and the world of cyberpunk that really took off with the presentation of the Wachowski's ideas about it.
0: Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, we'll kind of get to this, but it's like the idea of the matrix and sort of some of the simulation theory stuff is like it's it can sort of be split into two different ideas because like in the matrix the people are real yep for the most part they're just experiencing a fake world or a simulated world but like the people themselves exist and like their brains exist all this stuff like making all these decisions within this simulated world the other side of, like, simulation theory is, like, nothing is real. Yep. Like, we, there's no physical version of us. We're just computer simulations running around.
1: We're in the dream of an interdimensional gremlin or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, or we're, like, some kid playing a video game, however yes. long in the future. <laughs> so, which, like, I don't know. Which one of those is scarier? It's unclear. <laughs>
1: I think the video game idea, because then they can capriciously decide to turn you off. Shout out to my very good friend, Jeff Rauner, who wrote a really excellent short story about that. It's called New Game, and it is in his second collection of short stories. And it is really, really good. It's about a person who is bad in life and sent to hell and has to create torturous video games in which he himself takes part. And he gets redemption via being tortured through these video games. And he manages to sort of save his younger brother through his own redemptive efforts. Very cool.
0: Well, we will, yeah, we'll try to find that and then link it in the show notes so people can go read it um, or find a copy of it. So yes, yeah, so there's sort of two sides, I guess, to this this whole idea. But I guess on the like everything's a computer simulation that's being played out. Uh, that idea gets like launched in a 2003 paper that was written by philosopher Nick Bostrom, titled "Are We Living in a Computer Simulation?" <laughs> and uh, Rebecca, have you read this paper?
1: I have not. Um, Okay. In two thousand three, what was I doing? I was um, telemarketing for a funeral home. Oh, there you go. Very spooky. (laughs) Not not fun. Like imagine cold calling people and asking them if they would like a free burial plot. Well, you know, we all we
0: all gotta go somewhere.
1: (laughs) Yep. So no one that one. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, I did the usual thing, uh, academic thing, and read the abstract and the introduction and conclusion, and mostly just like read other pieces of media <laughs> summarizing it. Mostly because I am not a philosopher, and <laughs> I was like not clear that I was going to get the message of it uh, otherwise. But I think I can at least lay out the basics. And you can let me know if any of this sounds completely insane. Um, So he proposes three options, a trilemma, which I love that that is a word because I didn't know that that was a word before, even though it makes perfect sense that it is. (laughs) Um, And he says, one of them must be true if we assume that in the future, we will have the technology to simulate new realities with conscious beings in them. I love a good if-then problem. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sort of the heart of AI, really. Um, So one, uh, the first option here is that the human species is very likely to become extinct before we reach a post human stage. And by post human, he just means the stage at which we have the technology to simulate conscious beings that like, I guess, aren't technically human, although it's like, how do we define human? Anyway, that's a whole other rabbit hole. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So basically, we just never even get to the point of having that technology. Two, even if we have that technology, it's unlikely that we would run many of these, quote unquote, ancestral simulations, Um, basically like either been there, done that, or we're not allowed to, stuff like that. And that's sort of like, I don't know, that we'll talk about why my brain sort of goes to that. Uh, And then the third option is that we're already living in a simulation, (laughs) or like a simulation of a simulation. (laughs) I would say of the three,
1: number three is most likely.
0: So that's basically his conclusion is like that that that's philosophically, that's the most likely thing, which is terrifying. (laughs) The other basic question here, is it possible that we are living in the quote unquote base reality? Like we are the first iteration of this reality to happen and we're starting from scratch and everything is real. And, or like, are we playing out some sort of simulation by somebody else that was like created by our descendants?
1: Now, oddly enough, are we living in a base reality is not only a philosophical question, it's also an astrophysical question. It is, it's the question that asks, like, are there alien civilizations? So far, no evidence has been found. But then again, you can't have evidence of a negative. Yeah. So like <laughs> yeah, of the three initial ideas, it's most likely we're already living in a simulation. I would say no to number two just based on retro gaming. Like okay, you could how many ways in which do we have Mario? How many ways in which do we have Final Fantasy? How many people do we have who will keep? Obsolete gaming systems, or get like mods or moves online in order to play them. Like, uh huh. The iterations of Dungeons and Dragons, do we have? I had two students last semester who did their final projects on Dungeons and Dragons. Aww. and were shocked and thrilled to find out that I knew what they're talking about. Child, please. <laughs> Respect your elders. <laughs> No, as for human extinction, mm, so this has two aspects because it's it's a really lovely compound sentence here. It's difficult to isolate those things and make them independent of each other. Uh-huh. I think we will very likely become extinct at some point based on our own stupidity, sure, but Before we have the technology to simulate conscious beings, that depends very heavily on if we ever could. Yeah. Like if that's possible in the first place.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, and so that sort of brings me to my next point, which is, so my understanding is like, at least philosophically, (laughs) the day that in this reality, whatever it is, <laughs> that we're able to invent the technology to simulate conscious beings is like the day the scales tip pretty strongly in favor of us already being a simulation.
1: Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, like, <laughs> I don't know. So it's a ship of Theseus problem. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. (laughs) When does something stop being authentic and Uh become something else? Yeah. This has always been my question about the ship of Theseus, which managed to piss off basically every single one of my philosophy professors. (laughs) Why does it matter? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying authenticity doesn't matter. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that to certain people, or in certain situations, or various reasons, authenticity can be very important. But if you cannot functionally tell the difference, yeah, does it matter? Right. Well, yeah. I,
0: I sort of thought some of the same things when I was looking into this. Like, okay, so I'm a simulation, but like, I, I mean... <laughs> I guess that's sort of freaky, but also like, yeah, does it matter? Because I'm still experiencing the things that I'm experiencing and like, it is what it is.
1: <laughs> I can't do anything about it. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's basically my entire take on parts of the Matrix that yeah. didn't make sense to me. Like, uh-huh. I When I first watched it, I was very upset with the character of Cypher. Okay. Cypher is our Judas character in the first movie. He's the one who turns everybody else in and tells them where to find Morpheus and uh, is supposed to escape back into reality. Okay. And he wants to be fooled. Uh Uh-huh. He doesn't care about authenticity. And so we have this idea of if the structure is in-depth enough, if we can't tell, does it matter? Yeah. If we're in a simulation right now, I have a drink in my hand. I have a computer in front of me. I've got an apartment that is well-stocked with food and clothing. Uh Uh-huh. I'm comfy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. So here's my other point about that. (laughs) So, yeah. So, like, to your point, does it matter? Um, In an article, this guy, this astronomer David Kipping says that, you know, arguably – it's just not testable as to like whether or not we live in a simulation or not. So if you can't falsify it, like, can you really even say that there's like science there that you can do on it? And he said that he favors like Occam's razor in that, like the simulation hypothesis is like very elaborate and requires all this crazy stuff. So like, probably we're real. Well,
1: here's the thing about Occam's razor. (laughs) It it does work most of the time? Yeah. But just from personal experience and of course this is an, an this is anecdotal, this is not scientific. Uh-huh. There has never been a day in my life when what has happened has taken the simplest path or used the simplest explanation. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> this, this extends to my lengthy Attempt to figure out what's wrong with me and to get diagnosed with this, yeah. person, you know, this disease. So I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a collagen condition that's genetic. Mm-hmm. And like the the people who have EDS, we call ourselves the zebras because mm-hmm. in medical terminology, doctors are told when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Look yeah. for the simplest explanation we are not the simplest explanation and i think that using occam's razor when you could think more broadly and other options are not impossible yeah is reductive to the point of excluding things that could better completely explain the universe that you're living in yeah yes uh, uh, yeah <laughs> also something that managed to piss off every single one of my philosophy professors. I talked back a lot.
0: Yeah. Well, that's probably a good thing. Um, yeah. So okay. So here's the other thing is that you said like, you know, you're you've got a drink in your hand, you're happy in your apartment, all this stuff, but like but like lots of very terrible things happen <laughs> to yes. a lot of people. <laughs> so many things so many bad things happen. And it and I just like so like I so my thoughts are like, okay, let's say that we're part of some simulation and someone in the future is running it, and
1: it like how can you ethically do that though? Like how can you well, like but yeah like sometimes people don't do things ethically. And that actually comes into that matrix simulation too. Yeah. Agent Smith gives a very cogent explanation at the end of the first Matrix movie about how the human brain is not conditioned to be happy all the time. And it's true, we don't like we want happiness, mm-hmm. but we don't we need a variety of things. If things mm-hmm. go too well, we tend to rebel against that. We we even create problems where there aren't any. And then the fourth <laughs> yeah. I've sorry. never done that. <laughs> And in the fourth movie, the analyst sums it up as people longing for what they don't have while afraid of losing what they do. Uh Uh-huh. And like, if you've ever had a crush. (laughs) Yeah. We know that push and pull of desire and repulsion of longing and need and the ways in which our mind turns against itself when it has nothing else to do, and a true simulation of human behavior and human society would take that into account. And of course, I never, ever want to minimize any suffering. This, this actually goes back to another philosophical question, which is, if God exists, why is there evil in the world? It's the problem of evil. <laughs> Yeah, right. If God is all powerful and could do anything with this world, wouldn't that God stamp out evil because that is in the best interest of people? Yeah. But the flip side of that question is the question of free will. Yes. What if God, or in this case the simulator, isn't introducing the chaos and the suffering and the conflict? It is the free will of the people who won't accept that perfection. Yeah, <laughs> it's hurting my brain. <laughs> well, see, then you are you reacting appropriately. I like. I have a degree in this, and honestly, nobody ever agrees on anything in yeah. philosophy. It's it's a continuous debate, discussion, argument about who is right and what is logical and whether this fits into the schema of the everyday world. And again, that fundamental question of does it matter? Yeah. Um, so I, I graduated in 99, uh, in, uh, from high school in 99, and I went to my local college, Indiana University, South Bend, that year. And I was not suited to be a, a college student, and I very quickly flunked out. But before I did, I took a couple of philosophy classes, and then when I came back seven years later to finish two degrees, three minors, the honors program, I was a lot more (laughs) back then. I was, I was still like I had just come off of a long period of being very, very poor. Yeah. And my question for all of the philosophy professors was, why does this matter? Who cares what God is? Who cares if we're in a simulation that doesn't put food on? (laughs) yeah that doesn't solve anything and it still doesn't like this is all
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah well here's the thing though i think uh if this is some sort of simulation people could have like chilled the fuck out a little bit the last couple (laughs)
1: years
0: (laughs) 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 which i'm sure is ultimately the conclusion that like most people reach right now (laughs)
1: like okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i directing this thing like take a seat <laughs> yeah just like let us
0: have a little bit of time here <laughs> okay well I feel really good about this this was super fun to talk about I don't know I'm gonna go lay in bed and think about it for a while <laughs> um do you have anything else about robots or artificial intelligence or simulation theory that you would like to share before we wrap up
1: i want to take a minute to talk about what i'm going to do with this book on the matrix yes please (laughs) so i was really hesitant about the fourth movie because the first movie was great and the second and third were meh. Mm -hmm. like the animatrix was cool but almost nobody watched it Mm -hmm. and so the fourth movie was like gonna make or break and then it turns out that david mitchell who wrote both the book and the movie Cloud Atlas, was signing on to be a writer. The oh. Wakares, uh worked with him on Cloud Atlas, so they already knew him. And while viewing the fourth movie for the first time, I realized that the background music, the soundtrack, was in some places identical to the soundtrack of Cloud Atlas, which puts it canonically sort of in-universe. Oh, Okay. So David Mitchell only writes in one universe. So this, this also like adds to that. Okay. What I'm doing with this book is I'm going to go from the first movie to the Animatrix. There was a couple of like graphic novels in between also second and third movie and then the fourth. And I'm going to look at this idea of transhumanism, this idea of moving past our limitations as human beings. Maybe we're in a simulation maybe we could break out of it like we were in the matrix. Uh But in the meantime, what we have are these frail meat sacks around skeletons (laughs) that break down and that are imperfect and that don't conform always to the way we see ourselves and that have potential to integrate this technology. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, The Wachowskis have already confirmed that it is a trans metaphor. Now, trans what is something that they haven't really addressed. They're both trans, transgender. Yeah. But there is this whole transhumanism aspect to be explored. So I'm going to look at gender. I'm going to look at modern day robotics technology and cyborg technology that is integrated into the human body. I'm going to look at the films in depth because at least the first and the fourth, really do kind of want for that analysis. And I'm going to just like talk about this for seven chapters. So yeah, I have to start writing that basically next week. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I have a huge outline, so it's it, it should go pretty smoothly.
0: Nice. Perfect. Well, I guess, so we talked about your book. Did we talk about, like, where people can find you at all? No, if so you'd like. I,
1: <laughs> I'm on Twitter as long as it's a thing, at our Gibson girl. I'm on Facebook, nominally speaking, uh, at facebook.com slash the corseted skeleton. You can find all of my book length projects on amazon.com slash author slash Rebecca Gibson Bioanthro. And for anything that's not book length, you can definitely Google me. The the, the truth is out there to paraphrase another sci fi franchise.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was the one that. that... Uh, defined my childhood. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And we will put links to like social media and, and various other things in the show notes that we have talked about. That wraps up our first ever substitute sister episode Paige will be back next episode for the triangle episode. Dun, dun, dun. Um, <laughs> which we're keeping very mysterious. If you liked this episode, hit subscribe and share with a friend. Check the show notes for links to all of our social media accounts, our discord server and Patreon. If you have any questions about previous topics or ideas for future episodes, email us at sisters at gmail.com. As always, thank you for listening and stay spooky. Spooky Science Sisters is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more
2: information or to check out other shows, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad,